All right, good morning. Well, blessed Lord's Day to all of you. Thank you for joining us as uh, we spend time in fellowship and in worship. You got a taste of that fellowship just now and uh, having a conversation with uh, those that are around you. And we encourage you to proceed with that, to pick up on that um, after our service is done um, and to, um, to find the gathering of, uh, um, of believers and the redeemed to be of particular help uh, to your soul. As we think about help to our soul, we turn to the book of Job as we've been studying in the book of Job. And we turn today to Job chapter 3, a soliloquy of hopelessness. If you guys don't know what a soliloquy is, I suspect that many of you scientific individuals in the room, I say that, sorry, I I should take back some of the disdain in my voice. I I don't know why that happened. Uh, It's because I was at UCLA right? The campus is divided into two. There is South Campus, dark, foreboding, you know, guys with pocket protectors and really studious, and they know all kinds of formulas and and could solve, you know, equations and chemical issues. And then there was North Campus. Amen. But we thought about the things of life. It's like the more of the English majors, history majors, poli-sci majors, and um, that was me. And in, in some ways, the, the reason why that applies here is because this is a soliloquy. It is a, it is a, a monologue, but it's a monologue to your own soul. That's what a soliloquy is. It's a statement of expression that, that speaks into yourself. It is not meant, and you will see, that it is not necessarily meant for God. This isn't Job crying out, hey God, what is your problem? Right? This is not meant for his friends. It's not Job saying, hey, this is what I am. What's your problem? It's not him crying out to anybody. It is him in the full expression of the darkness of his soul and everything that he is experiencing. In a lot of the ways, um, this soliloquy is... Job on the inside. Because, right, chapters 1 and 2, we've seen everything that's happened in terms of Job on the outside. He's lost his children, seven sons, three daughters. He's lost all of his servants. He's lost all of his possessions, literally. He he has lost his health. His wife has given up and has encouraged him to just curse God and just die. Let, Let yourself rest. Let it be all done. His friends have gathered, and as they have gathered, they have done their best to, to minister with their presence and, uh, and to try to encourage and support him. But in all of that, with everything that is lost, we are seeing everything in chapters 1 and 2 from the outside. The soliloquy of his soul here in chapter 3 is what is happening on the inside. And I'm going to warn you, this is one of the darkest um, chapters of all the Scripture. And as we read through this, you will see the genius of, um, of the poetry of the book of Job. But at the same time, you will see the, the depth of the darkness of the soul for someone that we can confirm is a genuine child of God. How can we confirm this? Because the temptation you might face, and many of us will, is to ask ourselves questions like, man, does a genuine Christian, like, could he actually have thoughts like this? Can she actually have thoughts like this? And you will have steady company 
three friends that will have the same kind of thinking that you have just expressed. But Job is confirmed as a genuine child of God, not by Job, not by his friends, not even by Satan or the angels, but by the Lord himself. Remember, there was the Lord that initially initiated everything that takes place, that when he had summoned Satan and the angels, he tells Satan directly, have you considered my servant Job? Right? Faithful, good, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. Have you considered him? God is the one affirming this, and as we have said over and over again, of all the individuals that we're speaking of throughout Job, throughout the entirety of the book of Job, Job, will his faith stand? Does he know? He doesn't know. He's just a human like you and I. And even though I, 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 I hope that my faith will stand, could I guarantee that as if I had some infinite power or prophetic utterance and I couldn't? I just know that what I believe and I will hold on to Christ no matter what. That's your faith. That's my faith. That We know the best that we know. Is it guaranteed? No. Do the angels know? Does Satan know for certain the, the, the quality, the genuineness of Job's faith? They do not. Satan, in fact, is convinced that if Job is tested, he will curse God. He will seek any means to escape this life. That's what will happen. He will disregard you. He will dishonor you. It's because you hedge him in. You take care of him. That's why he honors you. The only one that knows that, that Job's faith is genuine is God himself. So when he affirms in the beginning of Job that he is a godly and upright man, faithful through and through, God's the only one that knows Job is going to come through this okay. And at the end of Job, in Job 42, verse 7, when, he, when God speaks to his friends and he says to Eliphaz, I'm kind of angry with you guys because you are not like Job. And then he affirms again, Job has spoken true things about me. And that's remarkable because if you take the beginning, what God affirms about Job, and the end, what God affirms about Job, and then you read chapter 3, you kind of go, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. What is happening with my godly, excellent, virtuous man? And it's because we are hearing his song of hopelessness as he is spilling it out within his own soul. So before we jump on that bandwagon to judge that guy severely, we should hear that out and understand that this is a genuine believer, affirmed by God from beginning to end. And yes, this is a darkness of the soul. So we are going to approach this with a, with a view to unpack um, what Job is trying to express. We are not going to make excuses for Job. He does not speak anything that is necessarily untrue. He is just speaking of what he wishes could have been. And what he wishes could have been is, in fact, quite dark. He wishes he had never been born. He wishes he longs for death. Here, let me give you the... There he goes. He wishes, right, that he had never been born. That's what we mean by he curses his birth. He laments 
for death, meaning that, that he would wish that, that God would just take his life or had never began his life. And he cries out in hopelessness. This is, this is the godly man, Job. In fact, right, we said, right, in, in the prophets, he is considered one of the three of the godliest men of the Old Testament. He is up there with the greatest of saints, and yet here he is, and we wonder, man, is this okay? And we have to learn and grow in the knowledge that there is a depth of pain that potentially we have not experienced, and just because it's alien to us, we assume that, oh, no, Christian wouldn't go through that. Look, we sang songs of the hope of Jesus Christ, how he is our steady anchor. That's true. That's theologically accurate. But that's not our everyday, every moment experience. And if we literally lost everything, literally lost everything, including our health, sat on outside, separated from everyone else in solitude, right, because we're unclean, sitting on a pile of ashes, waiting for our lives to expire, I imagine that we would have a similar soliloquy of hopelessness. So let's take a look at what the scriptures would have for us this morning. And in a lot of ways, we are learning to weep with those that weep and to kind of absorb, right, and to hear out um, the troubled soul and then to recognize that even in that troubled soul, um, his theological foundations are going to take root and grow. And he will begin to say in his dialogue with his friends, etc., He'll begin to say some things that are not just true about God, but begin to reestablish him and to readjust his thinking and attitude to life. But that's not today. Today is Job 3. Take a look at Job 3. Let me read it to you in its entirety, and we'll pray and start to unpack this. Job chapter 3. After this, after all that's happened, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling. And there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, 
whom God has hedged in. For my sign comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we look and read through this very dark chapter of Scripture, Father, it almost feels like such a passage doesn't belong in our Holy Word because your Scriptures are filled with with the darkness of sin, yes, but the victory of the redemption we have in Christ. It is always about your holiness, your righteousness, your salvation, and your, and your grace. And here, Lord, we, are, we encounter by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit the genuine darkness of the soul. Oh, Father, help us not to shrink back or to put up the pretense that there is never a darkness for us or to act as if we are impenetrable to the difficulties of this world. Lord, we know that the only reason why we do not crumble into insanity or hopelessness is because our Father keeps us. And so even as we look to this um, poetic masterpiece of the pain of the heart, we ask that you'd help us to think rightly, to think carefully, to to think with with, with, with sympathy and care especially as we think of not so much ourselves, but those that we minister to, and that there is always hope because there's always God. But then to hear the pain and to embrace that and to be okay with those that struggle and to care for them in a way that's honoring and good and according to your tender mercies. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have said all along that the issue is not truth. Right? That, and we will see that as we unpack each of the arguments that will come at Job. And we need to understand this. This is an ancient Near East form of dialogue that is not as much debate. When we think of debate, I will make three points about how, you know, um, you, know you are whatever, ugly or, or what, you know what I mean? Like whatever it is. And then you will argue back, well, I may be ugly, but you're fat, right? And I can always diet or whatever dialogue. We usually go point to point, attack uh, each point um, by point. That's not what will happen in the book of Job. That's what we call it a dialogue and less a debate. The idea here is almost what, uh, what some um, of scholars would call contest literature, Contest speeches. Job is going to say something that is significant and he's going to craft it in such a way that is, that is magnificent. And then in response, others will say something. Some things will connect with what the previous speaker has said, but their speech will stand on its own. And that's kind of what is going to take place. And Job kind of sets the stage for this by breaking out this work of poetry. Is poetry, and, and this is the thing I think of. Um, I think of Shakespeare. Do you guys like Shakespeare? Not if you're South Campus majors, you don't. <laughs> but one of the brilliant, if you've ever read something like, at uh, the top of my head, I'm thinking of Midsummer Night's Dream, right? It's a mixture, it's a comedy, and it's a mixture of high nobles and just kind of common, you know, villagers trying to put on a play. The brilliance, though, 
of that in particular, because if you know Shakespeare, he writes his plays and his comedies in iambic pentameter, right? In a sing-songy kind of poetic way. The structure, they speak like they're, they're poets. It's, it's remarkable and amazing what he is able to do in his genius. But here's the genius of it. In Midsummer Night's Dream, when it is the farmers and the local villagers, the knuckleheads, and they're putting on a play, when they speak, it, he just writes their words in prose. He just writes it like, and he said, how's it going? I'm going to put this horse head on my, you know, on, you know, the horse head on top of my face, and then we're going to walk this through. Like, they talk in normal prose, the way Shakespeare writes. But when, when, you know, when the king and queen of the fairies, the high nobles, when they speak, it is written in iambic pentameter. They return to that poetic structure. And so there's something about that that, that that reminds me that this is intentional, that is written in poetry to express the intensity, the emotion, not just to tell you what he felt. This isn't just my outline of, you know, I spoke with Job. This is how he's feeling. One, he's really sad, you know. Two, he's kind of feeling alone. Three, right? It's not just my points of prose that would de declare to you the things that are happening on the outside. It's poetic because he's trying to express what he is thinking, what he is saying, how he is feeling, but in the most literary and impressive ways. Um, I know we have that great theologian, Orphan Annie, who declares to us that, don't worry, the sun will come out tomorrow, Right? Bet your bottom dollar tomorrow there'll be sun. Just thinking about tomorrow clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow till there's none. You guys, you guys know the song, right? Everyone knows that song. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a good and excellent optimism that, that she is expressing, but that's not where we live always. Sometimes we live in Job 3. But I'll be honest with you. Uh, I feel like I've gone through some difficulties. I've never lived in Job 3. Not to the extent of Job. It, it is his poetic way of expressing what is killing him. And I know for the Christian, and it's true, there is a hope that is eternal. When we speak of eternal life, we're not just, we're not just promising that your life will not end. That's part of that great promise. But what we're saying is there is a hope that if we will place our faith in Christ and trust in Him for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. We're saying eternal life is eternal very much by the nature of its life-giving hope. That whatever happens here, this is not the end of the story. It's there. And so we talk about hope, and I tell you constantly that hope is just your faith aimed forward. But what happens if as you're trying to look forward, it's just a blank slate? It's a concrete wall. If the darkness is so severe that you cannot see that hope that you believe is there, but it feels lost. What if this life seems to be evaporating and all it's leaving is a trail of deep fog and regret? That is this heart song of hopelessness under the sun. I intentionally said under the sun, and we'll talk about that again probably, because we need to keep in mind that all of, a, all of this, again, is a statement, and it's a poem, it's a, it's a song to his own soul, 
Job is not necessarily saying that this is the theological reality of all people of all time. He is saying this is how I feel in the moment of hopelessness under the sun, within the realm of humanity, without reference to a God that sits in the heavens. But let's take a look. Let's deep dive into this increasingly all right, um, intensifying poem of the dark soul. He begins... He begins by cursing his, his birth. There you go, cursing his birth. We, it starts off in verses 1 through 10 with, with a curse on his verse, but we will, we will open with just verse 1. Look at that. It says, After this, Job opened his mouth. He cursed the day of his birth, and Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Job curses, right? That day, that day, his day, it's literally his day, and it probably implies his birthday. That's what seems to be spoken of in terms of his birth. And, and the point is that there are, there are sorrows that are so deep that it could drive a human being to madness. Uh, we can imagine that, and we've seen that historically. People have gone to great depths of darkness to the point of taking their own lives. Some people, in the midst of such tragedies, they might weep. Some might weep for a while and then they might completely disengage with reality. Some might just crumble and become something that they are not or not that something that we have seen in the past. Job chooses to curse his existence. He begins by cursing his birth. The word for curse that is used in the Hebrew has an interesting etymology. In other words, the, the word is built off of this root word that means to be light. So, so catch this idea, right? It means that something is light or inconsequential. And so by, by idea, by expansion, the idea is that it is so lightly to be taken that you could look at it with contempt. Yeah? It's not significant. You could spurn it. The opposite of it is honor or glory, which in its etymology in the Hebrew means that it has weight, significance, and consequence. So when we say, you know, and when we say that Job has opened his mouth to curse the day of his, his birth, this is what we mean. He is saying that his life has, is so inconsequential. He doesn't get it, right? It's weightless, worthless. See, Satan said that he would curse God. His wife has said he should curse God. And Job cannot seem to go to that place where he would utter a curse against God himself. He does what in his mind is the next best thing. He curses his own existence. He curses the day of his birth. He, he's getting close to cursing God. Yeah, we, we understand that, but something seems to hold him back. I want us to understand that, that we are tempted to think that, uh, that Christian maturity is defined by our ability to reason over passion. Now, that is often true because truth matters. Truth is significant. But Job is not a stoic, and neither are any of many of the great men and women of Scripture. They're impassioned. They struggle. They fight. 
Um, I think we looked at Rome in Romans. We saw Paul in Romans 7 saying the very thing that I do not wish to do, I find myself doing. He is struggling with these things. There is passions that rage within them, and it is okay. Because if you are tempted to think that, that what spiritual maturity looks like is an impassionate, reasonable stoicism, you are mistaken. That's not maturity. You might be tempted to think, right, that how immature of Job and I need to judge him, well, join his friends because there's three of them that are going to pile on and be glad to speak to that space. Job is grieving, broken, humiliated, and in anguish, and he speaks out his emotions to his own soul. And we can confuse stoicism with spiritual maturity. And for that matter, we can, we can confuse legalism with spiritual maturity. Or asceticism. That's like, you know, self-harm because you think, you know, you're not worthy enough. It's a, we, can, we, can, we can replace spiritual maturity with so many other things, but the mature in Christ will feel. They'll hurt. They'll bleed. They'll cry. Ultimately, they will trust and aim faith forward. They will hope. But that's not Job. That's not Job now. Right? He begins in verse 3 by saying, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. And you notice that in this entire section, there are these, these wish forms. Um, in the Hebrew uh, um, um, verb structure, they're justives. The idea is that, man, I, I wish, let it be, or may this happen, right? Let the day perish when I was born, the night that said that a man was conceived, that second part, that a man was conceived, and it means that there was, there was a boy that is born. It's the word, it's one of the many words for distinguishably, right, gender-specific male. The idea is that a son is born, and that would be cause for great celebration, and he's saying, man, may that day be cursed. The day that Job, son of, and we don't know who Job is the son of, all right? Job's dad, all right? Let that day be cursed. May that day perish, meaning let it be destroyed or blotted out. Literally blotted out. Verse 4, let that day become darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. See, so let it be dark. Let there be no light upon it. Verse 5, let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. You see, in all of that is this poetic kind of a, um, expression to say, let it just be blotted out. Let there be nothing of it. But in the middle of that, look at the middle part of verse 4. May God above not seek it. The phrase to seek it it's the opposite of forsaking something. He is saying, let God not desire to make it known, to seek it out, to establish that day. Let God reverse and rewind that. And let everything that is a day, everything that is light, everything that is life in that day, may it all be cursed and gone. Right? It's an intense statement of the darkness of his heart. He goes on to say in verses 6 to 10, like, let that night... Let that night be undone, right? Let, let, let it be undone or undo that night. Verse 6, that night let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it come into the number, let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. You hear in verse 6, right, the idea that let there be no birthdays. Blot this out from the calendar. Undo that night. 
And then verse 7, he is saying, let there be barrenness and no joyful cry because that would be the natural reality of, of expressing that, you know, that a child is born, a, a son is born. What a wonderful thing. In verse 8, let those curse who curse that day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. I know that's weird, right? But what he's saying is there are those that would desire to curse and to undo the day. There are those that stand with the, with the sea creature, Leviathan. And it's not so much about whether or not there is this huge monster in the ocean named Leviathan. Leviathan was the name of, of, of kind of the folk legend. It is the great sea creature, the beast that is untamable. It'd be their version of Moby Dick. And the idea is that there's this powerful sea creature that stands against God the Creator. He wants to bring everything back into the darkness, into the chaos. And he's saying, man, let that guy loose. He's not affirming that there is such a creature at all. He's using a mythological monster in the same way that we might say, dude, let the boogeyman out. All right? Um, you know, let, let Thanos come and snap his all away, right? It's, it's that kind of a stuff. It is using an expression that, that people would understand poetically to, to say that, man, if, if this could be undone, let it be undone. And he says, let the stars of the dawn be dark. Verse 9, let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. This one's a beautiful one. Think about the, the, the poetic... Um, kind of structure of this. He's saying, let the stars of the dawn be dark. The word for stars there is the morning stars. <clears throat> He's not talking about all the stars in the sky. He's specifically thinking about like, you know, Venus or Jupiter, Mars, Saturn, when they, are, when they are close enough that they become the brightest star in the sky. And so if you think about as the dawn rises, that brightest star is the last remnant of the night. And then the sun comes and casts out all the lesser lights. So he is expressing that, but he's saying, may it never happen. Let the stars, right, the morning star, let it stay, let it be dark. And let it hope for light, right? Hope for the big light to come and it never shows up, right? Have none. He says, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Isn't that expressive? It's like if you imagine the sun rising on the horizon, it's like the eyelids of the sun is opening up to us and the light is coming in. He's saying, don't let any of that happen. Shut it all down. Let that day be gone. Verse 10, why? Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb nor hide trouble from my eyes. It let me be born into this painful existence. There is at this, uh, this church in Dorset, England, um, uh, St. Nicholas's Church, uh, this beautiful memorial to a local fighter pilot who was shot down and killed in the battle of Britain, It is uh, this beautiful window engraved. And in it is a broken propeller of, the, of his plane. And on the propeller are two initials. His initials and then his young wife's initials. And it also has the years of the marriage, 1939 to 1940. And so this author that kind of tells this story says, what, what did that premature death do to that young widow? What happened in her mind to all the potential and hope with which their marriage began, the children they might have had, their future together. There's no comment in the window, but in those initials and in those dates is such a compression of grief. This is what we're talking about. 
It's knowing that, that something as, as wonderful and as delightful as the day of birth he is wishing had never happened as regards himself. Right? He curses his birth. He wishes it had never been. Well, he also laments for death. He laments for death. This is the longest section here in uh, verses 11 through 23. And we'll walk through it fairly quickly, but it goes this way. It begins with kind of a lament over this, this weary life. You, you hear the question why repeated over and over, and that's what we mean by the lament. He's just saying, man, what is going on? I don't even have, I don't have categories for this. All I can ask is why. Why is this happening? And it's not that he's even asking God why at this point. All he's saying is why. Why, why do these things happen? It's an expression of, of the brokenness of his soul. And he's just trying to express it out in any way that he can. And he begins in verse 11 and 12 by saying, Why did I not just die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Why did the knees receive me, while, or, or why the breast that I should nurse? And you see this progression from womb to knees to the nursing breast. And he's saying, like, why did all of that stuff happen? As if he would choose, if he could, that it wouldn't happen. And the verse 13 through 15 tells us why. He says, for then, if he had, he, had, he had died before he was born, he is saying, then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept, and then I would have been at rest. I like verse 13, because the verbs literally say, I would lie down, I will be quiet, I would be asleep, and I would, I would get rest. It's literally what we do every night, Lord willing, right? We lie down. Then we usually stop talking, right? We want to be quiet and still. And then sleep falls upon us and we feel that rest. He is literally saying that in his soul, one thing that he is lacking immensely is his sense of rest. And he gives an illustration in verse 14 and 15. Kings, counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver he says kings counselors and princes all of them successful the magnificently accomplished in this life they're there in the grave and i would have been able to rest in the grave beside them well not just the weary life to be put away but the burden life to be put away in verse 16 or why was i why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? So he's saying, instead of you know, being, being, not being born at all, how about if I was stillborn? How about if I was born but already expired? So there's this progression, right, that is going from I wish the day was, that never happened, I wish I was never born, and if I had to be born, then I wish I'd be born dead. It's dark, man. And then he's, he uses a, a parallel but different contrast of that rest from the burdened life. He says in verse 17, 18, 19, There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of their taskmasters. Do you hear that? He is saying that, that even the wicked who are in jail, their trouble, their paranoia, it ceases. The weary find some rest. Prisoners are at ease and they don't feel, the slaves do not feel their taskmasters, right, bearing down upon them. They find rest 
even though they are not the great nobles that we have mentioned earlier. See, in a parallel, it's the rich and the successful that find rest in the grave. It is the poor and the broken that find rest in the grave. It is, right, it is both the, the wearied life well-lived and is the burdened life not well-lived. And all of them find some peace in the grave. It is similar to what Ecclesiastes kept telling us when we studied that back in the day, Right? So the Ecclesiastes 7.2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Whether they are much accomplished or unaccomplished, they lay down their burdens. And again, the perspective under the sun. We said that before, and we want to doubly emphasize that, that this is him speaking to his own soul from the experience of his life without reference to the Almighty. He hasn't spoken much of the Almighty at this point, and he will. And that will be part of what begins to rescue him and grant him some semblance of hope. But here, this is just all about his life under the sun his, his experience in this life, his limited engagement with whatever has happened in his existence. And he is saying that it would be better, wouldn't it, if I was never born? It'd be better if I was born and I was dead, then I would be in the grave. There would be rest. There would be no trouble. Under the sun, that is true. Eternally speaking, I don't, and, I don't, and I, I'll be honest with you, I don't buy into a lot of our Old Testament scholars that think, oh, it's because they have no real personal eschatology. They have no sense of what will actually happen. Job is about to say that my Redeemer lives, right? And that he will stand on the earth. And even though my, my skin is destroyed, he literally says, even though I am destroyed physically, my flesh will see that day. He seems to be speaking of something that sounds like a resurrection and standing with his Redeemer one day. That's going to come many weeks ahead. I think it's Job 19, right? Um, but for now, in this moment, he's just saying, it's, it's my life has lost all sense of hope. Look at verse 20 through 23, right? There would be rest in death for the weary life. There would be rest in death for this burden life. There would be a finality to this lost life in verse 20. Why is life given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? He's saying, man, why, why is life given to the one that is in such misery or bitter? Verse 21, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasure, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. So he's talking about this life that is lost, that is desiring death. And I think it's interesting because he speaks of him who is in misery in verse 20, and he uses the singular. He's speaking of himself. And then he says, and why is life given to the bitter in soul? And he uses the plural. Speaking to other human beings that might suffer greatly just as he is suffering. And that, that bitter in soul is a is a particular phrase that is used often, especially in the prophets, to talk about how distressfully, painfully, right, um, we might experience difficulties in this life. It's the expression that used of Hannah when she is weeping at the temple in 1 Samuel 1 because she cannot have children. It is similarly used later in 1 Samuel in chapter 30 of parents who have lost a child that they've already had. 
It's used of the mariners as they weep aloud because the destruction of Tyre and everything that they have known in terms of livelihood is gone in Ezekiel 27. See, the idea is that there's this bitterness of soul. So why give them life? They actually long for death, but it doesn't come. They, they, would, they would look for it like, man, is this, is, this, is this finally the moment? And it doesn't happen. I think of the genuine believers, whether it's in church history, that have expressed this darkness of soul, whether it's the Martin Luthers, um, Charles Spurgeons, um, some of our hymn writers. And there have been many, and there are many stories that could be told about that. But we know them even in the life of our, our church, not necessarily individuals here, but even some biblical counselors have come and talked with us and encouraged us in the scriptures, etc., who have, who have struggled with such tremendous physical pain that they would wish that the Lord would just, okay, Lord, this is enough. Just take me home. It's an, expression of, it's an understandable expression of what our experience in this life could be, and this is what he is expressing here, right? They would rejoice. They would be glad to find the grave. So why is light given, verse 23, to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? This is an excellent verse because he speaks of light given to the one that is confounded or hidden, right? Um, that his way is unclear or clouded. And I think what I like about it is Job seems to sense that his way is lost and obscured. And he has life. He's not sure where he's supposed to go from here. He's been spending months sitting on ashes in the, the local dump, right? His friends have joined him for the last week. But all hope is lost in this life. And what is he supposed to do? What, where is his way? What is his direction? He's just sitting there in constant pain and misery. It's hidden. And then he uses that phrase, right, that is interesting. He says in the second part of verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden whom God has hedged in? Remember, that's the exact same phrase that Satan used. Say, of course, of course Job worships you. You have hedged him in in, in protection. And Job uses it without knowing because he didn't hear that dialogue. He uses it in the sense of, I am hedged in as in I am trapped. I'm not going to get a job. Am I, I going to have more kids or get married? Right? Am I going to, you know, what, what am I going to accomplish? He's confounded. He's hedged in. And he is saying that my life is trapped. This is over. He laments. And he can almost wish for death. But can I also say this? That in all of this, there is a fine line between he would wish that death would come for him and he is willing to take his own life. Do you see that? And I think there's something to that, even amongst the faithful, whether they speak of the dark moments of their time or inexpressible pain that they have to endure, right? The faithful find that they will not take their life into their own hands because that's not theirs to take. It is still the Lord's to give, the Lord's to take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And by the way, that's exactly Job's reference to everything that he's lost. And he seems to apply that theology even without thinking out loud to his own soul. He is wishing that the Lord would take his soul, but he is not going to force the Lord's hand. He's not going to take that into his own hands. That's not his to give, and that's not his to take away. So even in that darkness, there is these roots that run deep that remind him that there is still a God. So we look at his cursing of his birth, his lament over his death, 
And then he cries out in hopelessness, and it has really been building to verses 24 to 26. These, uh, um, verse 24 to 26, uh, verse 24 and 20, um, yeah, this section is, is kind of the, the, the crying out. It, it is the, the loud and extensive statement. It begins by verse 24 saying, My sighing comes instead of bread, and my groaning are poured out like water. And as many scholars have pointed out, our English words for sighing and groaning are insufficient. The term that we're translating, sighing here, right, um, is, is in other places in the Old Testament scriptures translated public wailing at a funeral. This isn't just, ah, this isn't the sigh of boredom. This is the weeping. And he's saying where there should be food, right, instead of bread, here comes my weeping again. Here's my loud and, and laborious sighing and weeping and hopelessness and expressing how bad things are or feeling that. It is, it is me gushing out with that. And then the second word, groaning, is a word that means really to roar. It is, uh, in other places, the roar of a lion. And it says that it's the groanings, the roaring out like pouring out of water. And I, I've said that, this before in the Old Testament when it says that sound is related to water. It's not talking about, you know, you flush the toilet, right, these, these soft sounds. It's talking about waterfalls or going to the shore and hearing the pounding of hard surf. It is something tremendous, the, the resonance of which you feel down to your bones. And he's saying, this is my crying out. This is my roaring it's like, and I'm roaring like it's pouring out with water. So you can imagine that even though the text doesn't tell us that this is how he's expressing it, in his soul, he is saying that instead of food, there is no appetite. He is just weeping out loud. And sometimes that weeping turns into howling. He doesn't know what else to do. So he's just crying it out as loudly as he can, and no help will come. So verse 25, he says, The thing that I fear has come upon me, and what I dread befalls me. The structure is uh, that what I fear is uh, that old Hebrew structure. You take a verb and a noun um, of the same word, and you have really in the literal, it would be I fear the feared, right? The idea is that this is an intense fear that has come upon it, this intense dread, right? And dread is that, that overwhelming emotion where you are, you know, you are, uh, you feel that nothing can help you, helplessness, and, and kind of, you know, being without any capacity uh, to resist. With all of that together, he's saying, man, this is, this is the fear and the dread. What is the fear and the dread? See, this is what's interesting to me, because I'm kind of curious, like, what is it? And, and I think most, most you know, um, scholars that are smarter than I, they, 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 they think it's kind of general. He's saying, as a whole, this is what, he's, what he may have feared, the fear that he may not have ever really realized is his greatest fear, etc. But my thing is, well, what is that? You know, Scripture tells us that, you know, that we can know the overflow of our hearts by the words that speak, or words are the overflow of our hearts. As Matthew 12, Luke 6, Jesus says that. So if there's a clue to what is Job's fears, it might be the words that he has spoken in chapters 1 and 2 to this point. In chapter 1, verse 5, he is worried that his kids might sin, so he's thoughtful about that. 
right? He wants the kids to remain in constant worship and connection and rightness to the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 21, he's, right? he speaks again, and he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And there he seems to be expressing in the loss of everything, his children, his family, his prosperity, his, his future, in loss of everything, he is sitting there and he's saying, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So it doesn't seem that his great fear is the loss of even children and of life and its, and its ability for him to, to enjoy life as he would like to. The material things, the physical things, even the family things seem not to be the main thing that he fears to lose. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, after he is covered in sores from head to toe, Right? And his wife says, you should curse God and die because she's given up hope. He says to her in verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So whatever he feared there, even the loss of physical ability, right? He is sitting in, in solitude. He is unclean, separated from society, sitting in the, in the ashes of the dump, right? All by himself. His wife has gone home to her family. He is all alone. And even in the midst of that, his thing is, well, God gave me good, and he has a right to pour into my life things that are not good, things that are difficult. So is that his great fear? I don't think so. What is this great fear and dread? And it must be his loss, this sensibility of God's favor upon him. It's like God does not seem near. This is what makes Job, Job. And so different from most. Because we would struggle with the loss, with the items gone, with the relationship severed. And Job is saying, those are not desirable things, but God is God. What he seems to say is there's this restlessness, this untouchable sense of dread, where my God is not near, and his favor does not shine. The thing that I fear has come upon me, and what I dread befalls me. He's going to unpack this better as uh, the dialogues continue. But his point and the culmination of all of this is in verse 26. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Therefore, as one scholar says, therefore, very quick verbal strikes that stab like a knife. He can't find rest. He can't find a sense of stability and quiet, you know, kind of sense. Of, uh, of things being good. He can't find any, any kind of rest for his soul and his heart, and the troubles continue. And even though his friends may have heard this, I don't know if they heard this, I don't know if this is something that just he has spoken just to his own soul and not out loud, but if his friends have heard this, apparently, right, they have not really heard his heart. They've heard his words. They've thought of you know, they thought of good comebacks for why he needs to fix himself and why theologically he's off. And you ask yourself in Job 3, where, where's the gospel? Where's the hope? Well, there's a slither of hope, a sliver, sliver, slither, sliver 
there's a little tiny bit of hope, right? In that, as we've already mentioned it, Job still, he hasn't in, in chapter 3 dealt with God yet. But he knows he must. There's more to be said. I mean, why, why doesn't he just take his life if it's so bad? Because that's not his right. Because he's, he's by, by instinct and by training, he knows that there is a God. He doesn't just do whatever he wants just because it's not fitting his desires. There's an unspoken but growing and potentially flowering hope that is there because God is still there. See, it's not dependent upon him, right? It's dependent upon God. And he is filled with this restlessness. Why even ask why? Just kill yourself already, right? He can't. He has to know. He has to ask. He has to think that there must be something that is there. There is someone that is there. There's some great purpose to this. And can I say this? So at the beginning and spoil it for you at the end, God never says, this is the reason why. And in your life, it's not an if, but it's a when, you encounter that difficult, tragic moment or moments, I'm pretty sure most of the time you are not going to hear, this is the reason why. This is the brokenness of the sin-filled world. And when we say Jesus is our anchor, you don't need an anchor unless the waves are trying to pull you away. There is a shadow of faith that will be challenged and that will grow. This is the darkest before the dawn. That's always the case. We, I, I, one of the, you know, I don't, I don't know many scientific facts, but I know this. You know when the coldest time of the night is? See, I always think it's like a bell curve, and it must be midnight, right? Like it's, it's been dark a long time, and that's why it's a, no, that doesn't even make any sense, right? It is, it is, as long as the sun is not present. It is the darkest before the sun rises. It is the coldest before the warmth of the sun comes. So it's literally just moments before sunrise, before the atmosphere becomes heated. That's the coldest moment. And that's the coldest moment of the soliloquy of hopelessness. It is Job expressing how bad it's gotten on his inside. His friends are not going to be helpful. But even in their challenge, he's going to find there are things that they're saying that is just not accurate of him. And he begins to find his confidence, not, not, not in himself, but that he has trusted in the God that is true. And some of the things that they say are true. He can affirm that. But they're misapplying so much and accusing him of so much. And he pushes back on that, realizing, and I think it ignites in him the sense that he trusts God, not friends, not wisdom, not blogs, right? not books, not articles. He trusts God. And because he trusts God, he will find a way out of the darkness of his soul. Let's close our time for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We ask that you would help us not only to have compassion for those that struggle in this, that struggle like this, but that you would help us to know that, that even if we don't feel it, you are still God and you are in absolute control. And that your promises have never faded or changed. Nor has your presence ever disappeared. But what feels as forsakenness, it may feel deep and dark, but we still have our God. 
And Lord, as members of one another, may we minister into that space. May we weep with those that weep and encourage those to remember the hope that we have in Christ. Because we do have an unyielding and unmovable hope in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We praise you in his name. Amen.